Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Brad for sharing your story, Pastor Brad for sharing your story, what God's doing, and we're doing this prayer initiative as he mentioned, and uh, I just encourage you to pray specific, pray bold prayers, God's big enough, and uh, he can handle whatever it is that you're asking, some of you even struggles and wrestling with him, he can handle that, he's got really big shoulders, he bore the weight of the, all of the sin of the world on his shoulders, and so he can handle any questions you have or anything like that, and we've been praying together as a church through different things, uh, if you remember when we began the, the prayer initiative, you know, some of you made a commitment to pray 30 minutes a day from that time until Easter. Easter's coming. We're only a few weeks away. It's on April 1st. No joke. It really is on April 1st, uh, Easter this year. And uh, Jesus Christ really has risen. That's not a joke either. Amen? And uh, so we're going to be celebrating that. We celebrate it today. We're going to celebrate it on that day. Uh, so you know, those of you who are praying, I'm thinking about bringing friends. We're going to move over to the gym on that day. So we're going to be able to have more seats in there. They're going to be actually adult-sized seats. Amen. All right. We're glad for that. This is a middle school. Those of you who didn't know that. Um, so we're going to be over there. Um, but in our prayer initiative, we started, you know, praying for revival in our own hearts, praying for direction in our church, uh, praying for, you know, future facility, praying for various things. From now until Easter, we're going to be praying about the mission. And praying about reaching our city for Christ, praying about some of the people that you may invite on Easter Sunday, and praying that people that would never go to church would come to our church on Easter Sunday, would hear the gospel, and that God would transform their lives. And so we're going to be praying that together. You're going to receive a little prayer card on your way out. We've got a bunch of stuff going on today. I won't mention all of it. You'll hear about some of it after, as you leave today, the Volunteer Expo happening out in the lobby and various things that are happening. But I'm going to pray for us. We're in a prayer initiative, and we're going to open up the Bible. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 3 today, picking up where we left off in our series. Now, here's my goal. This might not be God's goal, but my goal is we get all the way through Peter by Easter, and we start a new series in Hosea right after Easter. Now, the Lord might have us in First Peter until the summer. I don't know, but we're going to try and get as much done as we can this morning, so let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that uh, you are here moving up and down the aisles and tapping people on the shoulder going, that's for you, that's for you, and convicting hearts and encouraging hearts. I pray you do that, and I pray you'd speak a word to each one of us this morning. I pray you might even speak something to me that I hadn't seen all week studying this, that I didn't see uh, preaching in the first service, and you've got a word for this service, uh, what you want to do, and uh, I pray for hearts to be changed, I pray for lives to be changed. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to know how to apply this stuff so it's not just church that we do, but that we have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I said, there's a bunch of stuff going on at our church right now, but I don't want to miss that today is actually our 11-year birthday for Southbridge Fellowship. So we praise God for that. Yeah, give the Lord a hand for that. Statistically, most church plants don't exist beyond three years, and so every day past that is a miracle of God. We are excited uh, just that that's been happening, but knowing that today was our 11-year anniversary, March 4th, you know, 2018, I remembered back to March 4th, 2007. When I stood, we were at the movie theater over in Briar Creek. The room was different. I couldn't see your faces uh, there. I had these big lights that shine on my face. I was in like a pit. All the seats were like above me, so I was like stepping into the gladiator zone to preach a sermon. Like, who are all these people? I can't even see them. And uh, thankful none of you ever threw anything, no matter how bad it got. We're glad. Glad for that. But I remember that day, 179 adults, and sharing with them that we have a big God. And telling them about some of the things that God had done in my wife and I's life, some struggles we had been through, and how God had come and done some things beyond what we had ever asked or imagined, how he had done some things just leading us up to planting that church and really laying the foundation for our church that we have a big God. Amen? Amen. There's nothing he cannot do. I don't know what you're going through today, but there's nothing God cannot do. And he's interested in your life, very intimately interested in everything that's going on in your life, even every hair on your head. But we use that as a foundation to then cast a big vision. We got a big God, so we had to have a big vision. And our vision is really based on Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, it talks about Christians, that we, it's Jesus preaching a sermon. And so we thought, if we're going to steal something from a sermon, let's steal it from you know, Jesus, not like you know, Charles Stanley or Chuck Swindoll. Let's take it from Jesus. And Jesus preached a sermon, and he said, You're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. And then he says, summarizing the whole thing in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify. That they, that they, the world, non-believers, would glorify your God because of the life that you live. That's the vision. You're the vision. And then that we would become, verses 14 through 16, a city on a hill. Now, I've had people say to me before, well, I live in Cary. Am I part of the city? Yes. I'm talking about the whole RDU on a hill is not in the Bible. So we didn't go with that. 
But we want to be, and what it is is that we would be so individually transformed that we come into contact with people where we live and where we work and our homes and our neighborhood, uh, everywhere that we interact with people, and they, would, they don't know our vernacular. They're not going to be like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Drew's living for Jesus. Now I know. You know, it's not like how it works. But they might be like, that guy's so different. God might be real. And that's the vision. And the God would then change lives individually at a time he's been doing that. I remember the, the first outreach we did as a church. We rented the movie theater at the time where we were going to be at. We played a movie that had a biblical message. At the end, I got up. I did a simple gospel presentation. We had 12 people place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior that day. It was amazing. The room wasn't even full. 12 people came to Christ. They were so pumped. And then we were like off and rolling. And then God started bringing people. Some of them found new freedom in Christ that they didn't even know was available, walking with Jesus. Like religion was a thing to them, but they felt like it was oppressive, and they found freedom in Jesus Christ. And there were people, I, I imagine when we came to plant the church, we'd, get all, we'd be different, and I don't know, we'd meet at a theater or whatever, at the school or whatever, but I thought we'd be different than most churches. And so we'd get people who didn't normally go to church. And what I found was we got a lot of people that had been burned by the church or hurt by the church. Some people came and experienced healing. That's life change. Some people came, and it was like stuff clicked. And we meet some people, they'd be like, I go to Bible study here on Monday night, and I go to Bible study here on Tuesday night, and I do this. And yeah, I got a phrase for them, and for you, for those of you, those people, you're over-Bible and under jesus there's a bunch of people that like knew stuff about the Bible, neighborhood Bible studies, studied the Bible on their own, all this stuff, but they didn't have this, re like, Jesus is real, just so you know. He's a real guy who wants a real relationship with you, and for some people that clicked. That's life change. And God's had people walk in freedom. He's reconciled marriages, other relationships, addictions being broken. I remember we started our Celebrate Recovery ministry, and people started walking in freedom from addictions. People, they didn't even know they had. Some people, like, codependence and materialism, things like that. And, and also drugs and, and sex. Sex has been a big addiction that we've seen people walk in freedom from at our church. And so it's life-changing. We celebrate that. And then I think about last week. We had five people trust Christ as their Savior in the services here last week. Amen? Yeah, for sure. Give the Lord a hand for that. Three in the first. And then I, I thought back on it, and I thought, wait a minute. That's, I preached about submitting to government authority. <laughs> I preached about uh, submitting to suffering in our lives. It was God's call on our lives to suffer and fighting sin. And God chose to save some people. And that may, that's God working, just so you know. And uh, God's still doing it. But I remember one time uh, I was in a, an elder meeting and some of our leadership team was there. And I remember one of the guys in the leadership team he said, you know, Scott, when you talk about our vision, I don't disagree with our vision, but you say like a city redeemed, or you talk about there's a million lost people in our city that if they died tonight, they'd spend eternity separated from God. I, I hear the need, I understand the vision, but it's too big for me, he said. What do I do with my family? Like, what about in my, my work? And how, do I, how does this apply to my life? And some of you know what it's like. You've had maybe a moment, in a church, maybe even this morning, no longer slave to sin, and you feel like God lifts a burden from you. Or freeze, you lay something at the altar, maybe you've been up here before and you've prayed, or maybe you were one of those five, if you were one of the five people that trusted Jesus as your Savior last week, would you come talk to me after the service? I'll just hang out down here until people leave this room. I'd love to talk with you about how to grow in that relationship with Jesus. Some of you, you've made that decision to trust Jesus at this church, and then you go, now what do I do? How do I live this out? You know, it's, it's great to talk about, you know, change already you, but what about you? What about your life? How does it work in your living room, not just out there in this city? And I got great news for you today. We're going to talk about that. So 11 years later, March 4th, 2018, we're going to talk about life change lived out because that's what Peter talks about today in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, join me there, 1 Peter. 1 Peter is this letter. It's written. It's in the back of the New Testament right after Hebrews and James. And uh, we're in chapter 3. It's crazy. It's this letter that was written 2,000 years ago, but God wants to speak to our hearts today through this letter. And it's written by this guy, Peter, which he was a successful businessman fisherman, owned a fishing business, a couple lake houses, and he, he would have been just a nobody, just so you know, in, he, in history. But he's really popular with Christians. He was one of Jesus' three closest friends. And it's because he had one of those moments, one of those life-changing moments. And what happened for him is he was at work, not at church. He was at work, and God came to him, called him, said, you come follow me. And he did. And here's one of the things I love about Peter. We know he studied his Bible. We can tell by the way that he preaches. We know that he prayed exhorts people to pray. We know he was a, a leader, but he, he learned a lot of lessons the hard way. I don't know how many of you are like that. I told the first service, I remember the time when I was in high school, I had a, I had a before Jesus, uh, a really rough night. I made some bad decisions. I'd done some drugs. My friends took me to the emergency room, and my dad came and picked me up. So friends drop you off. Dad picks you up. If you remember what high school was like, at least high school for me was like. And I remember standing in my dad's kitchen the next day, and he goes, why do you have to learn everything the hard way? What do you say in that moment? Uh, I'm stupid. Like, I don't know. I'm stubborn. Peter was that kind of guy. 
where you see, and he's so gracious to then share some of those things in the Bible and to share them with his friends, and they write them in the Bible. So throughout history, we're not just like, hey, Peter's amazing. No, Peter was a mess, but God did a work in his life, and he changed him. And so when he's writing this letter now, he's an older guy. He's a pastor. He's done this about 30 years after Jesus died, rose from the dead. And you know what happened in Peter's life? When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave Peter a gift, not just forgiveness, he gave him the Holy Spirit, which not only did, that raise Jesus, did the Holy Spirit raise Jesus Christ from the dead, he then lives in you if you're a believer of Jesus Christ and enables you to do things you could never do on your own. And so we're going to call to some of those things this morning. Look at it with me, 1 Peter chapter 3. He's just talked about our calling, that we've been called to submit to authority, been called to suffer, been called to fight sin. In verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, we'll come back to that in a minute, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Let me tell you something, there's two points today, they're this, you've got to bring the gospel to your home, and you've got to bring the gospel to church. And we're going to talk about next week, bringing the gospel to the world. But here, what Peter does, he jumps into the home, and he starts to talk by talking about wives, in the first six verses, then verse 7, he's talking about husbands, we'll just read that right now. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without word, without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hid, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, Calling him Lord, that doesn't mean what some of you might think it means. And husbands, if anyone's going, that's my new life first, don't. Don't do that. We'll get to it in a minute. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And we'll get to verse 7 in just a minute that talks about husbands. But here we've got with wise Peter talking about how to, what does life change lived out look like? And the first thing he does, he jumps into the home, he jumps into the marriage relationship. He doesn't talk about, here's how it happens in church, and when you're worshiping, sing these songs, here's when you stand up, here's when you sit down, fight, 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 and he doesn't do that. He says, let's talk about your marriage. But here's what I love about what he does here. If you go to most like marriage conferences, some of you have gone to like weekend marriage conferences, or we've done seminars before as a church, or about a year and a half ago I preached on marriage, I've even done it. Usually what you hear about is the ideal marriage. And you go to Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, and wives are supposed to respect your husbands. And some of you sit there and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I wish. In what universe does the guy on the stage live in? I love here that Peter, he jumps into marriage, but it's so real and raw. He's talking about he, when your husband's not even a Christian, when he's not even, he's not a good leader. But I'm talking about how to bring the gospel into the home when your husband's not even leading well, ladies. And then he's going to talk to husbands at the end. And he's going to give the husbands, I believe, even heavier exhortation in verse 7. So husbands, some of you might glance ahead and be like, what's coming? Uh-oh, I'm going to prepare myself. Yeah, look at it, verse 7. And what he's talking about here, it's our first point. If we want to live out life change, life change lived out looks like bringing the gospel into the home. Life change lived out looks like bringing the gospel into the home. Let me just pause pastorally and say this. Some of you here, I know, I know some of your stories. I know some of you are married to people who are not believers in Jesus for various reasons. Maybe it was a bad decision that you made to sin at one point. Maybe you came to Christ later in life, or maybe you didn't realize they weren't a believer, all kinds of different things, and it's the greatest pain in your life. And so we talk to you about a prayer initiative, and you're like, I know what I'm praying about. I'm praying about the same thing all the time. And I realize that it stinks. And some of you husbands, same situation, married to wives that don't have the same faith. It's the most important thing in your whole life. And you've got this person that you love so much, but you don't share the most important thing in your life. And it's a big deal. And it's a heavy burden on your heart. And I know that. And I'll tell you, I've met with young couples before that are thinking about getting into that situation. And I've said to them, because of knowing some of your stories and knowing some of you, so I've, I've, uh, I haven't asked you yet, but I'm asking you right now. I've said, I've got friends in the church that will love to talk with you because they're married to non-believers, and they'd love to tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. But you stay, and you're faithful in that, and you stay in that, though, because that's where God's called you to. And Peter speaks into that today. And he's speaking here to these wives. And I want to say, too, to the rest of us here, even if that's not your situation, I believe Peter's got a word for us here, speaking into marriage, speaking into relationships. If you're not married, speaking to what the marriages should look like here, when he says, likewise, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Like, you can't just start with likewise. Likewise, like What? What's he talking about? Comparing to something. Likewise, he's referring back to the submission he's already talked about in chapter 2 and verse 13. If you've got your Bible, you can glance back. Chapter 2, verse 13, be subject, talking to all believers, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, 
all the authority that God puts in our lives, be subject to that. And then he gets in verse 18, servants, be subject, submission, likewise, same as the servants are, even when their masters are bad masters. And then the example, chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, it's about Jesus Christ. Do you know how to bring the gospel in the home? You live the way that Jesus lived. Jesus submitted to leadership even when it was bad leadership. To Herod, to Pilate. You remember the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate in John chapter 19? And Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to kill you? And Jesus said, you don't have any authority that God didn't give to you because ultimately what he was doing, verse 23 in chapter 2, is entrusting himself to his father. It wasn't so much about Pilate and it wasn't about Herod. And let me tell you something, wives. It's not about your husband. It's not because he's awesome you should submit to him, but because it reveals your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let me pause and say this. It says here, submit to your own husbands, verse 1. It does not mean women should submit to all men. To your own husbands in your home. We're going to see later. We read it in Romans chapter 8 today that we're co-heirs. We're all heirs with Christ. And Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says this. And so you can't just grab verses of the Bible and read them in isolation. You compare the Bible with the rest of the Bible. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. At the cross, we're all equal. And so what we're talking about here, when we talk about women submitting to men, they're not saying that men are better than women. And so the context of what Peter's writing into here. We'll talk about that in just a second. I know the context we're talking about here. Let me say something pastorally. In our time, the Me Too campaign. And Larry Nasser has just been in the news. And not equal wages. And women being discriminated against in the workplace because of their gender. To hear something like this sounds ridiculous, even oppressive. Let me tell you something. You are not being told here that you're lesser than a man. That your value is different. Your role is different. And we get confused in our society between role and value. We are equal at the cross of Christ, but we have different responsibilities, different roles. When I'm driving down the street and you do something that makes me mad, I don't have any lights on my car. I can pull you over and make you pay money. I wish I did sometimes, but I don't. But the police do. They've got a different role. It doesn't mean a police officer is more valuable than I am or you. He's got a different function, different role. And God set up some structure, some roles, and it's natural that in your heart you want to rebel against that because we talked about it when we talked last week. We are talking about all government authority, any bosses, anybody that's put in our lives. We all want to rebel, and it's not because of the structure. It's not because they're bad leaders. It's because we're all sinners. And so what God's saying here is when you do something that's so different, look at what the point is. You'd win your husband to Christ. It says, why be subject to your own husband so that even if some don't obey? And that's true of people that have professed Christ before too, they may be won without a word by your conduct. That you'd... So wait a minute, the key is not to turn on Southbridge podcast and play them as loud as you can for your spouse to hear. Or to nag them into the kingdom, or argue them into the kingdom, or leave out all your devotional books or the things underlined you want them to read. But you'd live a life. And this applies to husbands too, not just to the wives. Husbands that have non-believing wives, you live this life. To be so attractive, it would draw them to Christ. Verse 2, when they see you respectful and you're pure, when they see how you live, the actions speak louder than words, is what Peter's saying here, and that you live out so they would see Christ, how you bring the gospel into the home is how you then submit to the structures that God's put in place. Now, let me also say this, ladies. This is not an excuse for abuse. If your husband's abusive, I hope you'll tell the church. And if he's physically abusive, he should be in jail, just so you know. So we're not endorsing that. We're not saying that you need to be abused because this says to submit to him as a non-believer. Remember we talked about when we were talking about submitting to government authority. There's a time when you rebel. And that's when they cause you to compromise with God's truth because God's the ultimate authority. But otherwise, you submit to the authority that God's placed even when it's bad authority because it reveals Christ. It actually reveals your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with Jesus should be so attractive that your husband sees it and is like, I want that. And think about what's happening here. So we talk about things the way things are. We've come a long way since here, just so you know. At this time, when Peter's writing to these women, it was considered rebellion for them to have a God other than the God that their husband would bring into the home, false gods that the husband would bring. You weren't allowed to have friends apart from your husband and whatever friends he introduced to the home. So that's the type of place it was. And if you're, as a husband, if your wife converted to another religion, you couldn't get certain promotions, You couldn't hold offices in the community. You were mocked by the society around you. And so think about what Peter's saying here, that you would live a life in such a way that your husband would go, I want that, even though it's costing me a job, even though I'm being mocked by my friends, even though I can't have certain offices in this community. The wife is so attractive in a relationship with Jesus Christ that he wants that. 
It makes me think of some of you met uh, the guy who led me to Jesus Christ. He preached at the beginning of our prayer initiative. He's the one who actually gave us the challenge of you know, praying 30 minutes a day until Easter time about whatever it is the Lord lays on your heart and various things you can pray about. But I remember when he told me about him coming to Christ. Because the thing was about his life, he had something I wanted. And so I was trying to get to know this guy. And he started telling me about when he was an 11-year-old kid, that his dad, he grew up in a very non-Christian home. His dad was a Syrian guy, uh, worked in the shop. And legend has it about this guy, his name was Lazarus, is that he could grab two 100-pound bags of sugar and hold them up right next to his body and then bend over and grab a third one with his teeth and hold that one up as well. I've never seen this myself, but that's the story that I've been told. He's, I was told that he swore every other word at this time. He's a strong guy. He's a tough guy. He drank like crazy. And he said, Mike, is an 11-year-old little boy. He remembers the day that he's laying in his bed at night, and his dad came running out of his bedroom going, I'm saved! I'm saved! And as an 11-year-old, they had never heard talk like that in their house. They didn't go to church or anything. What are you saved from? What are you talking about? He thought his dad was going crazy. And so he said, in fear, he pulled his covers over his head. He went to sleep that night. The next morning, he came down to the kitchen. There were beer bottles all over the counter. He figured his dad got drunk that night. But then mom said, dad came down here and he poured out all of his beer bottles. I don't know what's going on. Something about he's saved. And then he came home from work that day and Mike said, he was talking very slowly because he was trying not to swear anymore. <clears throat> and then he took him to church. And so we sat in the front row of the church. I love that y'all sit in the front row every week. It's so awesome. Most people try not to sit in the front row, just so you know. And so, but they were new. They didn't know any better. So they were sitting in the front row. You like spit on. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's just, I flew anyway. And I said, Mike, his family, they're sitting in the front row at this church, and his dad's so excited about learning the gospel and learning about Jesus. And they're sitting there hearing this preacher speak every week, and they go and they get back of the car, and he says something about the sermon. He said, About the third week, they sat in the front row, the preacher's preaching, talking about life change, talking about surrendering your life to Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. You can have a relationship with him. You can be saved. And they got in the car, and his dad just turned around to the kids in the back seat, and he said, What that preacher was talking about, that's what happened to me. And my friend Mike is sitting between his siblings, and he thought, I don't know if I can trust that preacher back at that church, but I know one thing. I've got a new dad, and I like the new guy better than the old one, and he trusted Christ. Wives, that's, that's the life you're being called to live in your home when you bring the gospel into your home so that your husbands would go, I don't know if I trust that preacher at that church or what they say in this book but I see my wife. And she's, she's verse 10. He doesn't know these words to say, but in verse 10 it says, once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. I sure love, I sure love the wife that has Jesus in her life more than the wife that I, I knew at one time. And maybe you haven't been doing this. Let me remind you of what we sang this morning. God's mercies are new every morning. You can start today. And God actually does this. I, there was one lady that I read this week, she's a reporter, and the religion uh, was her beat of writing, and she talked about how she had written over 400 different stories of people's lives. She said, every time it's a husband who comes to Christ after the wife, they say the exact same thing. It's not what she said, it's how she loved me. St. Augustine says in his book, uh, Confessions, it's his autobiography, he doesn't talk a lot about his parents, but he talks about his mom, talks about his mom praying for him, and that's how he credits some of that, how he came to Christ, living this out, and dad wasn't a believer, until the very end of his life. And he said, it's because of the life that my mom lived that my dad came to Christ. Another, a letter that I read this week about a daughter writing to her pastor about her mom and dad and their relationship growing up and said when mom was, she was a new believer at 23 years old, dad had gone forward at a church but wasn't really a believer. And some of you are married to, to people that they've made a decision but there's been zero fruit. That's, that's the situation this young lady was in. She said, and we prayed for dad and all this stuff. And he would come every once in a while. He'd come on Easter, Christmas. He'd drop us off at church, but he wouldn't go. And he wasn't interested in spiritual stuff. And when I was 13 years old, mom found out that dad had been unfaithful. He said, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and seeing mom read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, if you're married to a non-believer and they'll remain, stay married to them. So she stayed, obeying God's word. Wasn't a happy family, but we had a family. And then she said, when dad was 72 years old, we were at a church service. He stood up and genuinely trusted Jesus as a savior. Lived loving Christ for six years, and then went home to be with Jesus. And then she went on to say, I'm so thankful for my mom being faithful because she lived this life that's so attractive. It's a different attraction than the world talks about for attraction. And you see that in the next couple of verses. So you don't, don't take these verses out of context. Remember the context of what it is, is living this life that's so attractive. It says in verses 3 and 4, women, do not let your adorning be external. 
doesn't mean you can't wear makeup. Some churches have said that stuff. doesn't mean you can't dress nice. But don't let what's attractive about you be this, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, and who say in God's sight, is very precious to your heavenly Father saying, let me tell you what's beautiful. Because the world's going to tell you all kinds of stuff. And ladies, I am so sorry for the culture we live in, but it is reality. Here's the culture we live in. The reality is this. I was at the dentist the other day. I saw Cosmopolitan Magazine. You ever seen one of those? Guys, you know what the message that's always being sent to women is? It's not just, hey, look like this, this is the makeup, here's the hairstyle, it's this, you're not enough. Your makeup's not good enough, your weight's not the right number, you're not tall enough, short enough, thin enough, whatever, muscular enough, whatever it is, it's always, you're not enough. Ladies, I'm sorry, that's the world that we live in. And also, you know what it usually communicates to guys? Guys, you can go ahead and go become a fat slob, once you get married, it's good, and she just got to keep getting better. It's not true, but as a society we live in, I can't imagine the pressure that you experience. Because I don't experience that pressure but I'm sorry you do. But here, here's what God's saying. Actually, why don't, trust me, trust me that, that you be attractive with what I find attractive in God's sight. And then I'll give you a man that loves that, that loves what I love. And so let me say this to you, Pastor that what I would want some man to say to one of my daughters if they were rebelling against God and they were trying to, you know, they thought the only way they could get attention and love was by the way they dressed and they dressed immodestly. And some of you see other women do it and you're like, well, my husband's going to see that. Let me tell you something, every man's going to see that. I'm not saying you shouldn't dress nice. I'm talking about immodesty here. I would want someone to say to, to my daughters, what I'm going to say to you ladies, is this. Any man that wants you for that is not the man you want. If you're married to them, now, and that's what they're like, trust the Lord to change their heart and pray that God changes their heart, that he would love what God loves. Because let me tell you something else, and this is a newsflash for some. Um, all physical beauty fades. Everybody who's over 20 should say amen. <laughs> it all fades. But you know what? Heart transformation should continue to get better and better. Amen. And so here it says, let your attraction be from What's precious in God's sight, a gentle and a quiet spirit. And then he gives it, here's a, this is kind of heavy on the wife. This is like a lot of responsibility for the wife so far. I think verses 5 and 6 are a moment of grace. It says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So, wait a minute, it wasn't like that. But then do you know where we live, Peter? By submitting to their own husbands. And then here's the example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And that doesn't mean like the Messiah. She's talking respect, just showing respect. Like Ephesians chapter 5 says, wives, respect your husbands. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. And so why this is grace here is because if God's picking who he's going to give as an example of someone who actually did this and he picks Sarah. Now, I don't know if you've read the Bible or not, but some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, she must be like amazing. She must be like super modest and never says anything, doesn't stand up to her husband. Read the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 is where it starts for Sarah's story. Just so you know, she's a woman who laughs at God. God says what you can do, she laughs. She tells her husband at one moment, sleep with this other woman so that we can solve God's problem for him. Okay? So she's not perfect. And that's the example God's giving here. Grace is what that is, just so you know. But when you look at her life, you know what you see? Someone who is willing to lay her life down for the sake of her husband. Do you know what that's an example of? Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Jesus Christ. She actually reflected Jesus Christ, even though she's an Old Testament saint. Read about it, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham gets called out of idolatry to go follow the one true God. She's not a believer. She's going, where are we going? He's, I don't know. God's going to tell us when we get there. Which God? The one true God. You're saying there's one? Let's go. She wasn't afraid to stand up to her husband, though, either. They get to a place at one point, and, she, and he says to her, hey, lie and say you're my sister. Bad leadership, by the way, men. That's pretty selfish because otherwise they're going to kill me. So in other words, he's saying to his wife, put your life on the line because they might take mine. That's not, we're going to get to verse 7 in a second. That's not it. And she does it. You know what she's revealing? She's revealing Christ-like love, willing to lay down her own life, risk her own life for the sake of someone else. That's why, because her hope was ultimately in God. And the woman who one time laughed at God realized that God could do the impossible. She grew. That's your example, ladies. 
and then men. Look at the first word in this verse, likewise. I don't think we have to go through the Bible lesson again. Remember, I already said it in chapter 3 and verse 1. It's the same word. Likewise, like what? Verse 13, chapter 2. Verse 18, chapter 2. You're supposed to submit to men. Do you know Ephesians chapter 5, before it talks about wives submitting to the husband, says that all Christians are supposed to submit to one another in verse 21? But what does that look like? What does that mean for the man? Because there is this structure that God puts in place, and it's not that the husband's supposed to submit to the wife and the structure of the relationship. So what does it mean? Look at it. Look at the passage. It'll tell us. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding, and that word's the key. You can underline that word. Understanding, circle, knowledgeable. Some of your translations say way. Showing honor. Oh, the same way you're supposed to honor the emperor? Same word. Honor to her as the weaker vessel. What does that mean? That seems demeaning to the woman. Uh, some people think it just means physical strength. I think that it means she's put in a more vulnerable situation the way that God's put this relationship together. If you abuse that, God's now against you. And we're going to read what it says here at the end of verse 7. I want to tell you something. Some of you feel like, why am I not close with the Lord like my wife is? It's because of the way you treat your wife. Look at what it says. Since they are heirs with you. Oh, so they're equal. They're the heirs we read about in Romans chapter 8, the Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 talks about, they're neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, they're all equal at the cross, they're co- she's a, so she's equal with you spiritually, let that sink in, of the grace of life, but here, don't, treat it, don't, don't abuse your position so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Some of you, we're in a prayer initiative, some of you, why won't God answer my prayers? For some of you, it's because of the way you treat your wife. So what does it mean to submit to her? What, it's you're submitting your needs to her needs. Because that's what a leader does. Likewise, remember the example, chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, is Jesus Christ. What did he do? He knew our needs, our greatest need. And he became humble. He submitted himself to the Father. And when you submit your needs to your wife's needs, you're giving an example of Jesus Christ and showing your relationship with God. You're bringing the gospel into your home. Any man, whoever has to quote, wives, submit to their husbands, to their wife, you're losing already. That didn't go well. No one should be like, this is my life first. No. You should be living in such a way they'd want to submit to your leadership because you're actually serving them because Christ was a servant leader. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He was a servant. Did not consider equality because somebody held on to. Did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What Abraham was doing, that was selfish. Your wife does not exist to meet all of your needs and all of your wants. But in this relationship, you're actually supposed to submit yourself to her needs and her wants. And how do you do that? Look at what it says there. I told you the key, underline, understanding way. Then do you know your wives? Do you understand them? And let me tell you a couple things. We'll go 101 and 201. Hopefully you already got 101. Let me tell you, so 101 is this. They're different than you. Okay, you got that one? Hopefully that's not a news. Not just that a woman, different than a man. That's true. But she doesn't want all the same things you want. Her body's different than your body. She's got different hormones than you do. She's got different dreams than you do. She's got different desires. She's got different things that she likes. And, different. and let me tell you something else. Now we're going to the next level, 201. Those things are changing. The woman you married, I don't know how long ago you got married. Maybe yesterday. It's not the woman that you're married to today. Some of you are going, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, no. You're the problem if that's your answer. Here's the deal. You're supposed to live with her in an understanding way. That means that you study her, guys. You thought you were, you were done with school. You're not done with school. Not if you're married. You're always in school. And you're studying your wife. And so you're finding out what are those needs. And it, and it can't just be, honey, what would you like me to do? No, no, no. We're past that level, okay? Some intuitiveness to this. What does she like? Well, maybe I should do that. What, is it, what are her dreams? What are her desires? What is, what would, how would she like me to lead differently in the home? And, and you study, and it changes. Because here's the reality. Here's one of the most dangers of like marriage retreats and things like that. Is you go and you do like personality tests. And it'll tell you, you know, she's a beaver, or she's a one, or she's a lion, or she's a whatever. And then you put her into this box of whatever the personality thing was. And let me tell you something, she changes. Lord willing, she's growing in Christ. As she matures just as a human, her, her, how she relates to other people, it's changing emotionally in every way. And you study her. Likewise, so you can then submit, you bring Christ in the home through that. But it's not just into the home, it's also into the church. Verses 8 through 12 talks about bringing the gospel to church. And that's our second point today. You bring the gospel into your home. That's how you live a life change. And you bring the gospel into the church. Verses 8 through 12 talk about it. We'll read those in just a minute. But let me just say this. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, what do you mean I'm supposed to bring the gospel to church? Isn't that your job? <laughs> like you stand up on the stage. You, like, you, know, you get paid to go up there. And at the end of the message, at least, you're supposed to tell people, like, hey, if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, do that. And that's bringing the gospel to church. Nope, nope, nope. Talking about living this out. 
So what does it look like to live it out in the church community? So second point is this. Life change lived out means bringing the gospel to church. So what does that look like? Well, let's read verses 8 through 12. He tells us here. Finally, and we know that either he's really long-winded in his conclusions or he's not wrapping up the book here because this goes for a while still. Finally, he's starting a new section. He's not just talking to husbands and wives. All of you, talking to all believers now, so that's how we know we're talking to the church. Have unity of mind, sympathy, some translators say compassion, brotherly love, a tender heart, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And so some people think, so I read one commentator this week that said, uh, commentators are like scholars that write about the Bible and try and teach you stuff you didn't just know. And he said that, that actually here Peter in verse 8 is talking to the church, but in verse 9 he must not be talking to the church because he's talking about evil for evil. And I'm like, you've been to church? <laughs> Christians can be mean. I think he's still talking to the church here. And when those other Christians hurt you, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may have, you want to know how to be blessed, you want to know how to live the blessed life, you want to know how to obtain a blessing, he's telling us here. And then he quotes Psalm 34, which says basically the same thing as verses 8 and 9, but let me read it to you, verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life, who's that, everyone? See good days. Still think we're talking to everybody. Let him keep his tongue from evil his lips from seeking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So you don't just pray and it's like zap and there it is. No, it's actually a process. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And oh, not just to husbands, to all Christians. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you want some of you distant from the Lord because of your relationships with other people, even relationships with people in church, relationships even with other Christians. So you want to bring the gospel to church? How do you do that? Well, there's a bunch of commands here, and you can see them. And verses 8 and 9, you see about 6, 7 commands. Depending on how you count them up, and then you see the stuff that said, uh, quoting Psalm 34 and verses 10 through 12, and we don't have time to go through all that. So I'm going to break it down into three different principles. But you've got to ask yourself the question, where's that in the passage when I say the principles? And so here's the first one. First one's this. You want to bring the gospel to church? You've got to be willing to get messy. You want to bring the gospel to church, you've got to be willing to get messy. Where's that in this passage? What are you talking about, Scott? How's that in the passage? Well, go back up to just verse 8. It says, finally, all of you. I'm talking to everybody. Now, I don't know exactly who the people were that Peter was writing to, but I know who the author is, and that dude's a mess. And have you noticed why New Testament letters are written? Have you read some of the other uh, New Testament letters that are written to churches? And you read some of these, like the Romans, the Corinthians, the Philippians. You read these different letters. You know why they write? They write usually because there's a problem. They don't, it's not like a denominational report. How many people attended? How many people have been baptized in the last six months? None of that stuff's getting talked about in the New Testament letters, just so you know. It's like, how about to the Corinthians? Hey, you know what the problem is? You're following different preachers, and it's Paul writing, and he's one of the preachers they were following. He says, some of you are following Peter. Some of you are following Paul. Some of you are following Apollos. Follow Jesus. Cut that out. He rebukes them. But then later in the same book, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And you're like, what's going on? He's saying this. All the stuff that you see in my life that's like Jesus, do that. The other stuff, don't do that. But you don't know Jesus to know what that is. Follow Jesus. And he's, saying, he's not rejecting his responsibility as a leader. He's saying, hey, it's not really about me. It's about Jesus. And then he goes on. And you know what he, says? he starts addressing real specific things. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, hey, there's a guy in your church that's bringing his dad's wife to church as his girlfriend. And y'all are acting like it's cute. And Paul goes, that ain't cute. I get grace, I love all these people. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to kick that dude out of church. And you need to tell him that he's being handed over to Satan so he can see where his sin leads him to because you love him. And then people are like, what you? if we do that, we're going to get sued. He goes, oh, chapter 6 is about lawsuits. That's great. Because some Christians are even suing each other. He's writing them because you know what? Church is a mess because people are a mess. Let me tell you, this might be the most important thing I say to you all day. Here's the, here it is. You put two sinners together, somebody's going to get hurt. You put two sinners together. That applies to marriage. It applies to church. There should be a warning label on church and a warning label before marriages. Two sinners are coming together, warning, someone's going to get hurt. But here's the problem, and you can check me on this. This is my opinion. It's not in the Bible. I think most people in RDU have never experienced church. A lot of people have been to services, heard words from the Bible, taken communion, been baptized even, the different thing. But you've got to be willing to get messy. See, what most people experience is a dog and pony show for church. You come to church, you smile at each other, 
You say some pleasantries, maybe some Christian platitudes, tell somebody you're going to pray for them, and then you go on your way and you do your thing. No interest in their life. See, you want to you want to bring the gospel to church, you've got to get involved in each other's lives. That's why we do small groups. Small groups are the only way that it happens, but it's not going to happen in a setting like this, just so you know. There's too many people, and there's a lot of mess, just so you know. Some of you are sitting next to people right now that have mental illnesses. You don't know it. Some of you don't want to know. Some of you are sitting next to people. Their spouse has recently been arrested for a crime you wouldn't even fathom, and they're hurting. Some people's marriages are falling apart. And it happens, right, at our church. You want to bring the gospel into those situations? You've got to get messy. We were interviewing last week after the, the services were over with uh, myself, the executive pastor, myself, three different lay leaders in our church. We're interviewing different pastoral candidates. We were looking for a pastor for small groups and care, and we've had hundreds of candidates. We had it down to five guys, and we were interviewing these guys. One of them asked me, he said, Pastor, what's the vision for the church in 10 or 20 years? Now, I could have quoted Matthew 5 to them, could have told them where we've been, could have told them where we're going. The vision's always the same. It's life seeing lives transform. There's different strategies, different focuses, different emphasis, like we're in a prayer emphasis right now, different things we'll do, but it's still the same vision. But instead, I said, you know what? So I went to a Christian college, and uh, the Christian college I went to, we had to go to chapel five days a week. We heard preaching, and we heard some great preachers. And some of you, like, listen to podcasts. We probably had some of those preachers come to our chapels. But there's one guy that sticks out to me. And it's because, I mean, everybody, just so you know, everybody who goes as a guest speaker tells their best stories. That's what I do. I tell my best stories about our church whenever I go somewhere else. Everybody tells their best stories when they're speaking someplace else. So I know the guy told his best stories. But he stuck out to me above everybody else. He wasn't the best speaker. He's not a, he was a great speaker. wasn't that. He, he didn't have the biggest church. But, you know, you can run a system, you know, like Disney on Sunday morning and get people to show up. But when this guy talked about his church, it, it was real. His name's Jim Cimbala. Some of you have heard of him. He's written a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It's a book on prayer. And in the book, he tells some of his stories. And he was telling some of his stories to our, our chapel. He's talking about students that had grown up and gone through their youth ministry and then rebelled against God. And while they're in prayer meeting, God brings them back through the doors of the church while they're in crazy sin. It's like, that's God. That's not a program. He talks about people that are in addictions and being set free from those addictions. You can't, you can't manufacture that. God has to do a, a miraculous work in somebody's heart. Talk about relationships being reconciled. Talk about God you know, taking homeless people and taking them from begging to them being disciple makers in the church. Amazing. And I was like, that's what I want. That's what I want our church to be like. Not that we need to be in New York City, which is where he's at, but I want, I want when people to come to church here because your life has been changed, they, they go, this is real. God's a real guy. He wants a real relationship with you. And these people are experiencing it. And so they might not have our words. That's Matthew chapter 5. But they're going, what they got, I want that. That it's real. And let me tell you something. It's real messy, just so you know. I was in a meeting to, a couple weeks ago. I ended up talking about the first funeral I ever did uh, as Southbridge's pastor. I remember it was a woman who came to our church. Our church was just getting started. We had just gone to two services. I remember it was the first service, and I preached. It was right after the weekend after Labor Day. I remember it very vividly. I preached the message that morning, preached against sin, talked about relationship with Jesus. There's this woman in the lobby. She's got tears in her eyes. She says, Pastor, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, sure. I said, can I come to this church? Which I thought was ironic because she had already attended the first service. I was like, I, I'm going to go with a yeah on that one. But then she said, I want you to know I live a, a different kind of lifestyle. She's a lesbian. But she was kind of beating around the bush to how to say that. I was like, oh, a different type of lifestyle. As she said that in that very moment, this guy walked behind her who I knew was an alcoholic and most people in our church didn't know was an alcoholic. Look, North Raleigh. North Raleigh business guy. Unless he smelled like alcohol that morning, most people have no idea. And I thought, if that guy goes to this church, how am I going to tell you no, you can't come to this church? Of course, of course you can come to our church. She starts coming to our church. There was a woman that she worked with invited her to our church, ended up leading her to Jesus over the next eight-week period. But the reason why it was my first funeral is because at the end of the eight weeks, she ended up, in a bad moment, taking her own life, committing suicide. And I remember the woman who invited her to church, I, I got asked to do her funeral, had come to me and said, well, is she in hell now? Because that woman had come from a background where she was taught, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. The Bible doesn't say that, just so you know. The Bible says the sin that's unforgivable is rejecting Jesus Christ. And so I asked her the question. I said, well, you told me that she trusted she trusts Jesus? She said, yeah. I said, well, let's not let her life be defined by the sin that she did at the end of her life. Let's let her life be defined by the decision she made. It's the most important decision anybody could ever make, trust in Jesus. And let me tell you something, just pausing, by the way, too. If you're considering suicide, we would love to talk with you. That's not the answer. And Satan's feeding lies into your mind. But you know what I love? 
is that that woman who I was in small group with that invited her to church, that she's the one who led her to Jesus, that she was concerned for eternal destiny, was willing to get messy. You're sitting next to messy for today. You might not know it yet. You've got to be willing to get messy. But getting messy doesn't just mean telling people your junk or other people telling you their junk. There's a process, and that's the second point here. The second principle is this. You've got to be willing to engage in the process of life change, the process of bringing the gospel into the church. You've got to be willing, first one, be willing to get messy. Second one, be willing to engage in the process. Remember it said about peace, seek peace, pursue peace. That means it's something you go after. Like any adventure movie you've ever seen, there's a pursuit that happens in it. How does that happen? Verses 8 and 9, you get all these commands. All of you, all of you in the church have unity of mind. What does that look like? It doesn't mean we all think the same. I am a Christian. We all agree. That is not what that means. Just so you know. We a lot, I don't even agree with myself sometimes, just so you know. There's no two people in here that think everything exactly the same. Here's the ridiculous thing that happens sometimes in church. We've had people leave our church before because they find out there's Democrats that go here. <laughs> We've had Democrats leave our church because they get this stereotype on the news that it's like, well, if you're a Christian, then you must be this. And it's like, how stupid is that stuff? And just thinking about what's happening in the world today, Billy Graham, how come all these different denominations, how come he was a counselor to Democratic and Republican presidents? How did he do that? You know why? Because he kept the main thing, the main thing. He wasn't afraid of controversial stuff because I, I wasn't part of the conversations. I'm pretty confident, though, that Billy Graham confronted each one of their sin and called them to eternal life. You know what we're unified in? We're unified in the apostles' teaching. We're unified in the gospel. And the things that aren't those main things, we can have disagreement about. And so Billy Graham had his views. Billy Graham had beliefs. And I believe he tried to submit them all to the Bible. We didn't agree with everybody that he ministered to, but he wasn't going to let those things hinder them from experiencing eternal life. Unified in the apostles' teaching, in the gospels. And then he goes to the next one. Have sympathy or compassion. Do you know what that is? That's to feel someone else's pain. So we talk about being willing to get messy, not just that, oh man, that's tough for you. I hope you get that figured out. I'll pray for you. No, you won't. No. I feel that. And so I'm married to a believer. Praise God for that. Some of you aren't. My heart hurts for you. Jesus, when he looks at the crowds, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. He is the shepherd. But he said he saw them as hurting and helpless, and he was moved in his bowels you feel their pain. Brotherly love. Of course, we're supposed to love one another, but notice it says brotherly love. You don't treat somebody like they're just a member at the club. Hi and goodbye. And they're your family. And so you know what that means? You might not like them. They're still your family. And they might be weird because they're in your family. And that's just how it works. That's the, he's talking to the church. And guess what? We're all going to spend eternity with each other, those of you who are believers in Jesus. Might as well get to know each other now. Family kind of love, tender-hearted, meaning be responsive to one another, not just running over. Hey, I know the truth, and what you say is not the truth. Let me tell you the truth. Drop a bunch of truth bombs. No, tender-hearted, responsive to people. Give room for the Spirit to work in people's lives. Humble mind, all of this. I think the first one and the last one really tie this together. Unity of mind and a humble mind. Humility, you think of others better than yourself. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Here's our third principle is this. You want to bring the gospel into the church? Be a blessing. Come to church with a plan to be a blessing in someone else's life. You want to bring the gospel to church? You've been blessed with the gospel. You want to know how to be blessed? It says here, be a blessing. You don't revile when you've been reviled. Somebody slanders you, love those people. Love them all the more. Remember the story we talk about shootings? We haven't seen a shooting like the one that happened in the Amish community about 12 years ago in a while, though. Remember that one in 2006? A guy came in and shot 10 of the girls in this Amish community. And the Amish community, they went to the funeral of the shooter and then raised money for the widow. That's being a blessing. To someone who wrongs you is the exact context here. But what if we just, can you just, here's a little vision for you. Can you just imagine if, if every member of our church, so I'm not saying if you're a guest you need to do this, but if every member of our church decided, I'm going to be a blessing to people at church when I come to church. Not just come here, I need a word, I need this, all the things I want to get. But what if you came here and you started looking for ways to bless other people? thinking about it this week. I remember when I was a youth intern, the very first church I ever attended, I started working with the youth group, and they ended up having me come there. I didn't know what I was doing, but they let me hang out with their kids. I'm trying to invest in the lives of kids. I remember this one guy, his name was Ron, come walking down the hallway up to me, and some of his kids were in the youth group. If you met Ron, uh, you wouldn't think that he had had many experiences in life. He was a pretty simple guy, drove an old clunker car, did not dress in the nicest clothes, looked like he was poor. He came up to me, and he gives me this handshake, and when he pulls away, I realize he left money in my hand. He's a $100 bill. I was a college student. It's like, are you kidding me? I can eat for a year on this. 
And there was no NCAA violations, by the way. It was ministry, ministry, not sports. And so I take it, and I started watching Ron in the hallway. He'd come up to me. Sometimes I'd be like, oh, man, he's going to try and give me money. Like, I'd get a bear. And he didn't give me money every time. I remember one time he gave me like 300 bucks. Like, I'm set. <laughs> but what I didn't notice about Ron is he was always looking to try and bless people and bless other people. And sometimes it was a hug. Sometimes it was a word. Sometimes it was a prayer. But what, what if we did that as a church and we weren't looking at what we were going to get and we started looking at who, who do I need? Who am I going to church for today? Not what am I going there to receive, but who, am I, who does God want me to bless? Maybe pray for in the lobby. Maybe say a word. Maybe follow up with the week. Maybe write them a note. What, who does God want you to bless? What if we went to church trying to be a blessing? Do you know there's people that have come to Jesus Christ as their Savior in our church because somebody heard that they were going to be in the hospital waiting room for somebody else that was having surgery, and they went and sat with them for eight hours, and they were like, then I saw the gospel. I had heard it preached, but then I saw the gospel. What if we did that? See, that's Matthew chapter 5. That's the vision. You want to know how to live it out? You live it out in the church. You live it out in your home. And next week, we'll talk about living out in the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you speak your truth into our lives and that you don't want us just to be Christians on Sunday for an hour or, or some afterglow moment that we have as we walk out of this place but then in a daily life when it's not easy and we're dealing with non-believers or people that wrong us or things that are, that are just tough because people are messy, that you call us to enter into the mess. And then in that mess, you work out stuff in our own salvation and you help us bring other people to salvation. And God, that you put the gospel on display in the home, in the church. Father, I pray right now just for my brothers and sisters who have, have spouses that don't know you or maybe some that have made professions of faith but there's no fruit in their life and their heart. When they pray, that is what they pray. God, I pray for those spouses to come to Jesus some today. And I just want to ask, is there anybody here who needs to trust Jesus as their Savior today? Would you just raise your hand? Would you raise your hand if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior? I see a young boy right here. If you just look at your kids, you've got a young, young person with you today. You can talk with them, pray with them. If you need somebody else to pray with them, you can bring them to me. I'd love to talk with them. Father, I pray. I see there's somebody in the back that has their hand up. Father, I pray for that gentleman that has his hand up. I pray right in this moment he confesses sin to you, and I pray that he'd ask you to be a savior. And I, and I just ask if one of our pastors or one of our elders or one, even one of the ushers would come over and just talk to that gentleman before he leaves today and just ask him, is there something, how can I pray for you? Do you want to become a Christian? If you do, let me tell you what the gospel is. Share the gospel with him. If you could just raise your hand up again, sir, just so somebody could see it, that'd be great in the back. Raise your hand up. Make sure somebody goes to him. Somebody see him in the back? One of our pastors see him? I'm sure Steve Trexler, maybe you see him there. Talk to him over on that side. And Father, I just pray. I pray for burdens that are here. I pray for things that are going on. I pray for people that need to repent. If you need to repent in this moment, God, I pray. I pray that you'd put, that just a, somebody wouldn't leave their back turned to you longer. They would turn to you and you'd no longer have your ear unattended to their hearts. But you'd always hear the, the prayer of repentance. You'd always hear the prayer of somebody calling out for you for salvation. You'd always hear that. And God, I pray for those who need, that are believers that need to turn back to you. People that are in these marriages that have not been living out the gospel that would begin today. God, your mercy is new every day. Show them your strength. Give them hope. This Breathe like a breath under, the, under their wings in this moment. Give them a refreshing lifting of the burdens. And some people have burdens. Lift those burdens. They'd come to you in this moment. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.